I want to encourage you now to turn your Bibles to the book of Romans. Our scripture reading will come from the book of Romans this week. We begin a, a short uh, excursus on a different subject apart from 2 Corinthians. And we will continue our study in 2 Corinthians after we're completed. Uh, we have been addressing the subject of homosexuality, marriage, and the Bible. And our scripture reading this morning will come from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. Very poignant and applicable passage related to the wrath of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. The text reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that the bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. Slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come before your word. And God, we pray that you would grant to us understanding. Help us, Father, to know your will as we discuss a subject that is so very relevant and prevalent in our time and culture. 
God, we pray that we might know your heart. That, Father, you would grant to us insight and understanding of our times. Your will through your word. And may you be honored. In Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Last week we took a look at a sampling of various inroads that advocates of homosexuality have gained in areas of language, in areas of culture, counseling, public policy, schools, nationally and internationally, and even the church. We looked at the biblical portrait of God's intention for marriage that it is to be between one man and one woman. And I want to reemphasize that it's not just a political issue or a social issue. It's a biblical issue that's important for us to understand, important for us to be informed, to be equipped, to communicate to others God's will, God's intention for marriage, for families. Some believe that they are inoculated from the issue and effects of the issue after all they may reason why not let them do whatever they want to do as long as it doesn't affect me but it's not isolated to simply the issue of gay marriage or gay rights in many ways it affects everyone the issue for example affects your children who are in schools as they see gay-themed books in the library and read books like What Can You Do With Two Mommies or My Mommy is a Boy or Fire Engine for Ruthie, whatever it may be, and you never know what sort of things other kids are talking to them about. It affects older students. They're confronted with the issue, even if you send them to a Christian college. Just last Thursday, an article came out on the front page of msnbc.com entitled, Underground Gay Group Emerges, Shaking Evangelical Christian College, La Mirada, California. Quote, on the same day President Obama became the first U.S. president to come out in support of same-sex marriage, a group of students announced the presence of the, quote, Biola Queer Underground, unquote. At this small evangelical university, touching off a highly charged debate about Christianity and homosexuality, the group launched a website and posted flyers around Biola University campus May 9th with the following message. We want to bring to light the presence of the LGBTQ community at Biola. Despite what some may assume, there are lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transgenders, and queers at Biola. We are Biola's students alumni, employees, and fellow followers of Christ. We want to be treated with equality and respected as another facet of Biola's diversity. Biola has a code of standards that includes prohibitions on sex outside of marriage and same-sex relationships. Sex is designed by God to be expressed solely within a marriage between a husband and wife, according to Biola's student handbook. It's imperative for parents to clearly understand, you see, and consistently teach their children the Word of God, whether they're young, whether they're old, and not merely just say, well, I'm just going to take them to church and let the church do its job. I don't have to do any instruction in the Word of God. I don't have to learn. I don't have to understand. Because there's that personal responsibility that the charge has been given to parents to be the instructors of the Word of God 
to your children. It's a very pertinent issue in our day and age. There's been a greater and greater acceptance in our culture of those who have a homosexual lifestyle and an asserted effort, an asserted effort by some advocates to change our entire culture with how we view homosexuality. Professor Alex Montoya at the Master Seminary notes, quote, What Christians in America need to know is that the homosexual community has an organized agenda to change the moral fabric of American society. This organized effort has been well documented by David Kuplian in his Marketing of Evil or an expose by Marshall Kirk and Hunter, Madison's book, After the Ball, How America Will Change Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. A more recent book is The Agenda, The Homosexual Plan to Change America by Reverend Lewis P. Sheldon. In Kirk and Pill's writing of the overhauling of straight America, they offer five strategies by which to change the culture. They say, well, number one, talk about gays and gayness as loudly and as often as possible. Two, portray gays as victims, not as aggressive challengers. Three, give protectors a just cause. Four, make gays look good. Fifthly, make the victimizers look bad. All for the purpose of overhauling the culture and the beliefs of Americans. It's an effort to change the perspective of homosexuality. And as polls suggest, the perspective on homosexuality has changed quite a bit, especially among the younger generation. As our world changes, our culture changes, our society changes, but the truth of the matter is the Word of God never changes. And today I'd like to present to you perhaps more of a biblical perspective rather than information. I'd like to present to you key texts and address the subject as is oftentimes misinterpreted, misapplied, misconstrued by advocates of homosexuality in order to support their viewpoint. It's not my intention to explain in details all of the arguments that are given. You can freely go and get a book or go online to read how many of these in detail are twisted. But I want to let you know and make you aware of some of the misinterpretations that are given for various passages of the scriptures. And secondly, I'd like to suggest some thoughts when it comes to ministering to those who are homosexuals, how can we as Christians respond in a godly way? But before we look at particular texts, it's brought to my attention that perhaps it might be useful or helpful to distinguish whether a person is a homosexual because of their lifestyle or practice or because of their inclinations and orientation. And it's important to understand that in a biblical or with a biblical understanding, a biblical framework. And so I'd like to take this few minutes to address that because the perspective I believe that the scriptures portray is that a homosexual is one who engages in the practices or lives in the lifestyle of one who is a homosexual, either in outward life or inward in their heart's actions. 
In other words, one's inclinations or orientation as the world would define it would be more of an indication of their degree of temptation by which they face. That they are more tempted to engage in that sin. They're more inclined to engage in that sin just as an alcoholic may be more inclined and have a strong desire towards hard liquor and desire to get drunk. But an alcoholic can resist that temptation and not become involved in drunkenness. It's important to understand that the Bible distinguishes, you see, between temptation on the one hand and sin on the other. James 1, 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It's important to distinguish that temptation and sin are two different things. It's important to note that God is also just as concerned about what happens in the heart as he is with the outward actions. For in Matthew 5, 27, Jesus reminds the people, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Simply because one is not engaging in immorality outwardly, inwardly, if their heart and mind is dwelling and engaging in inwardly of that sin, they are also guilty. So when someone gives in to the temptation, the orientation or the inclination, as our world would call it, whatever it is, whatever sinful temptation it may be, whether it is stealing or coveting or immorality, if one gives in to that, then it is sinful. So rather than using the world's psychological labels, it's more helpful to define things biblically. That one who is a homosexual is one who engages in or practices or lives the lifestyle of one who either outwardly in their life or inwardly dwells in their heart, in their actions. The scriptures would see as one who is a homosexual person is not characterized, you see, by their temptations, but by their inward or outward actions. When Martin Luther was talking about impure thoughts, this is what he said. He said, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You see, some think that, well, if I am not engaged outwardly, it's okay. And yet inwardly, in the recesses of their thoughts, they inwardly sin as God, though, sees the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7 reminds us, For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So I'd like to present some key biblical texts related to the subject of homosexuality and inform you of some of the misinterpretations that advocates will take. The first one is found in Genesis 19. If you'll turn your Bibles there with me. Genesis 19, verses 1 through 11. It is the well-known account of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, verse 1. 
It says that two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now, behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. And then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, However, no, we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, and all the people from every quarter, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with the man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien. Already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hand and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both great and small, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. In the text in verse 5, their intentions are clear. The Hebrew word relations can have a range of meaning. One is to know, i.e. to get to know, uh, have information on, to all the way to have an immoral relationship with. This idea that the men of Sodom simply wanted to make friends or to socialize isn't in the text. No, they were there and they had sinful intentions. In fact, Lot knew of that. He told the men in verse 7, do not act wickedly. He knew their intentions were wicked. And the sin of Sodom is well known. In our language, it is known. It is carried over into the word sodomy. In fact, their sinful desires were so strong. In verse 11, even after the angels pulled him in the door and struck the men outside of the door with blindness, they were still so driven, both great and small, verse 11, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. They were blind. They didn't run off and scream and said, I'm blind, I'm blind. They wearied themselves still trying to find the doorway. The drive of their desire, even after blindness, unbridled, immoral passions. But homosexual advocates will look at the passage and misconstrue it and say, you know what their sin was? It was that sin of inhospitality. Inhospitality. Some commentators will comment that was their sin. Others will say, well, another interpretation is the men of the city were suspicious of the angels that Lot protected. They thought perhaps there were outsiders trying to infiltrate the city and so they wanted to humiliate them through abuse. In either case, homosexual advocates will advocate that this was not a common condemnation of homosexuality in general. But if you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, there's a very telling statement about Lot and his 
situation in which he was there. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Peter here in this context, speaking of God, how he did not spare angels when they sinned. And he says in verse 6, And if he, meaning God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men... For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. In other words, the word there for unprincipled in the New American Standard refers to the lack of morals or translated also in other translations as lawless or wicked men. In other words, ungodly people ought to take note. That's the warning. Ungodly people ought to take note that what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah, not because they were inhospitable, but because they were led by their own what? Sensual conduct, their wickedness of immoral men ought to take note of what happened, of God's judgment. And for their homosexual sin, God destroyed cities. Leviticus 18.22, as well as Leviticus 20, verse 13, the second set of passages reads, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a female, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Now, in the Mosaic Law, homosexuality was clearly condemned. We're in the New Testament times. We don't follow the old Mosaic Law. But we surely know what God thought of homosexuality. Homosexual advocates will say, no, 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 no. This has to do with temporal prostitution. Not long-term committed relationships that are meaningful. They get that type of interpretation from reading authors who will purport that the cultural milieu of that time was filled with temple prostitution. There's nothing in the text that suggests that Moses had in mind temple prostitution. They go forth and continue to read things into the text as well. They go to David and Jonathan. King David and was a friend of Saul's son, Jonathan. And they say, well, they were, they were more than good friends. And they, they had a gay relationship, they'll say. And they say, well, look at all of the things that they did together, etc. And they read into it. And often that is the case. Reading into something with sexual overtones to the text. Suffice it to say, they contort the scriptures again in that way. In 1 Corinthians 6, a very clear passage as well. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, if you look at that particular text. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, where Paul writes to the Corinthian church in verse 9. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's a clear warning right here at the very, very beginning of the list. Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be taken by those who would want to convince you that they're all right and that it's normative. They hope that you will be taken. And the warning here is don't be deceived. Paul writes to the church, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled into thinking that all of these folks who live this type of lifestyle, who are practicing fornicators or live lives of drunkenness or are thieves or adulterers will be saved. Well, that is a long list. Nor can anyone say, well, I I really don't know. I really don't know what's going to happen to them. I don't want to judge their salvation, a promiscuous fornicator, as to whether or not they'll be saved. I mean, it sounds very diplomatic and offensive, but certainly Paul wasn't taking that approach here. Don't be deceived. How do homosexuals view this passage? They look at the word effeminate, which is generally the the more feminine partner to a homosexual, they they take that word and say, well, those are people who are morally weak, vain, fearful, or self-indulgent. Those are the people who may on the outside seem strong, but they have a morally weak disposition. And for those who are homosexuals, they'll say in their view, that refers to those who are abusive or those who are forceful in their relationships. Not to those who are homosexuals who really will have a meaningful relationship, who will be kind and not impose. Once again, it's reading all of these things into the text where there is no nuance there. I mean, if that were the case, why does it apply only to homosexuals and not to heterosexuals, that of an abusive, forceful relationship? Certainly there are many more abusive heterosexuals. That's like saying, well, you know what, it's okay to steal, just don't steal too much. Or it's okay to swindle somebody as long as they may not know they've been swindled. It's not about the extremity by which somebody has done something. It is sinful either way. Paul says, don't be deceived. And then in our text this morning, Romans 1, verse 18 and following this particular passage, there's a progression as we've seen. The progression as we've gone over this passage before of the rejection of God from the suppression of truth, verse 18, to not honoring Him, verse 21. To idolatry and the worshipping of animals, verse 23. And other created things. God gave people, it says repeatedly, and God gave them over to impurity. To the degrading of passions. Verse 26. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. See, one of the major reasons why a homosexual will give justification for their lifestyle is that it's not their choice. Rather, it's natural for them. That's what they'll say. They'll say, uh, it's natural. God made me this way. This is how I've always felt. Ever since I was young, they'll say. I always knew I was different. And that's not uncommon at all to hear. 
How do you reply? This is how it's, I've always felt throughout my life, they'll say. I always thought that I was different. I always enjoyed whatever it might, might have been. That's how I'm inclined. The answer is simply, simply that somebody feels a certain way or it's natural for them doesn't make anything right or wrong. I mean, if we follow that line of thinking on that's how I was born or that's what makes me feel the most natural or I'm inclined, then we'd all be justified. We'd all be justified in whatever we feel like. Somebody who says, well, I was born selfish. I was born proud. I was always, I always saw things that I like and ever since I was a kid, I took it. I took it. Somebody who's, you're driving along the freeway and you're swerving along the road because you're drunk. And the cop pulls you over and he says, I'm going to give you a ticket for drunk driving. You say, you can't give me a ticket, nor can you impose your self-righteous moral laws upon me because I was naturally predisposed because my parents were alcoholics and I had fetal alcohol syndrome. I've always been drawn to alcohol, so don't you bother me with that. And here's the scientific evidence behind that. What would you think the cop will do? He'll write you a ticket. He might even put you in his car for belligerency. I don't know. But our feelings, our inclinations, our tendencies to do something don't determine what is right from what is wrong. What the standard of right and wrong is, is the Word of God. You hear the similar line of reasoning from people who commit adultery. They say, they say, how can something that feels so right be so wrong? Or it's okay for me to cheat on my spouse. Why? Because God wouldn't want me to be unhappy in an unhappy marriage, would He? Something that I don't like. Why is it wrong? Because it's not a matter of how you feel. It's not a matter of how your inclinations are. It's a matter of what God says is right and wrong. Because God is concerned not about your happiness, but about your holiness. And He knows that if you live a holy life, you will have true joy that will come. The Bible tells us that what is natural and unnatural, and it gives us the defining terms, the definition is not based upon our feelings. According to the text, homosexuality is unnatural. And it's very important to answer those who argue along the lines of, well, this is how I was created or this is how I feel or these are my tendencies. As I shared with you, these things have to do with the aptitude of one's temptations, how they act on those inclinations and desires is what? Their choice. They choose. You might be inclined to covet and to steal, but you don't. But they choose to sin. They give in to that temptation and they follow their lusts. They choose that lifestyle. It's not an excuse to say I was born that way or it's my personality or it's how I am as if that makes it right. See, everyone here, everyone here is born into sin. And everyone here is tempted to varying degrees with varying thoughts and attitudes. And everyone has areas of weakness. You may struggle with a bad temper. 
You may struggle with covetousness. You may struggle with love of money. You may struggle with gluttony. You may struggle with drunkenness. Some may struggle with homosexual behavior. What tempts one person may not tempt another person. But when we give in to that temptation, we make that choice, don't we? We choose. We choose to rebel and sin against God when temptation comes. And that is why homosexuality, so homosexuality defined as a behavior is a choice to sin against God. You see, a thief is not a thief because he is tempted to steal, but because he chooses to give in to his covetousness and he chooses to steal. Romans 1, the passage testified very clearly that homosexuality is a sin. And it is a part of God's judgment of abandonment. And the point of Romans 1.18 is that if people persistently reject, persistently abandon God, God leaves them to their own devices. Psalm 181, 11 and 12 says, But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Now, there is the same sentiment here in Romans chapter 1. God indirectly gives them over in the sense that God withdraws His restraining hand. And in a direct sense, God gave them over to judgment. Mankind, because of the lust of their heart, then devolves into greater sin and depravity, to degrading passions, it says in verse 26, abandoning that which is natural for the unnatural. The scriptures very clearly state homosexuality as a sin. It is not natural, but it is the result of God giving people over. Giving people over. Understanding that it's sin then. How do we minister to them? How do we minister to somebody who comes out of the closet, so to speak? How do we explain and approach people who may be gay or profess to be homosexuals. Here are some suggestions, certainly not comprehensive, and certainly there are many other things, but I think these are perhaps key. Initially, of course, we respond with love and respect. Initially, we respond with love and respect. You see, rarely does somebody respond positively when they're being yelled at or screamed or hateful, abusive language is yelled or we avoid interacting with them. And love and respect doesn't mean that we agree with their lifestyle or affirm it even. As I mentioned last week, Christians may disagree. That doesn't mean, though, that we cannot show them love and respect. And it's interesting to note because, you see, you have to understand what biblical love is and what the world's love is. The world defines love as this sort of self-centered, immoral love portrayed in the media. That's perhaps the predominant view. Worldly love also says that, well, you know what? You can do what you want and tolerate everything, good and evil, moral and immoral, embrace compromise because that's what love is. It's sort of a sentimentality. But biblical love wants what is best for someone else. It wants what is best and the very best for someone else is that they might embrace and follow God for His glory. 
Biblical love sees somebody who is walking into oncoming traffic, sees somebody with a terminal illness that they do not know, and love impels them to tell them about the truth so that they might turn from their way, so that they might not be hit, so that they might not die, so that they might be blessed. Biblical love seeks that which is the best for someone else. And that is to turn to God. It doesn't look at others as the enemy. It does. looks at somebody who is perhaps lost and caught up in sin. Biblical love responds with a desire to help them see God's way. Secondly, be clear that homosexuality and lesbianism is a sin. Be clear that it is sinful. You see, our society, our culture wants to redefine it to make it more acceptable. And as I've shared with you, you can just watch the news. They'll show polls, especially among those who are younger, that see it as more normative or more natural when the scriptures say it is unnatural. And the problem is that if people don't recognize that it is sinful... If they don't accept the fact that it is sinful, then there's no need to change. There's no need to change. They'll think God is fine with it. You're fine with it. And continue to live in that way. Being lost. Being separated from God. Being apart from Him. Not having and not experiencing true joy. Not experiencing fellowship and the abundant life that God wants for all who will follow Him. And that is the problem with labels that our society uses. With various people who who have various struggles, they'll define it and they'll counsel people. Well, you just have to accept yourself or forgive yourself or they blame others or whatever it may be. And our contemporary culture defines and places a label on it so that what? You don't need to turn to God and repentance or sin. Sometimes people will advocate that might be a damaging thing to somebody's psyche. But be clear that it is sinful. Why? Because you love them. And you know that if they don't turn from living that life, they will be separated from God. Don't be deceived. For ourselves, thirdly, humbly remember that we were once ex-sinners as well. Humbly remember that we were once ex-sinners as well. In 1 Corinthians 6, there's a long list. Remember we went through that list and looked at it. And it says, such and such folks will not inherit the kingdom of God. But in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, Such were some of you. The church of Corinth was filled with ex-thieves, ex-adulterers, ex-effeminates, ex-homosexuals, ex-whatever it was. It was filled with these people. And we too are ex-something. We were ex-sinners. But we were, as Paul says, sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. You see, by the grace of God, you and I are sitting here today. And by the grace of God, we can hear the Word of God. We can hear God's intention to understand and know the heart of God. But it's nothing that we say, well, we're more righteous in and of ourselves. I made the right choice. You know, the grace of God enabled you to do that. The grace of God saved you. Not to our own credit, but to the glory of God. And we remember that those who are involved in that sin 
need God's grace as well. Fourthly, if they profess to be a believer who struggles with the temptation of homosexuality, help them to see their identity in Christ. Help them to see their identity in Christ. Maybe you might have a believer who has and struggles in those temptations. Help them to see that their identity is not by a label that's been slapped on them. Oh, I'm a manic depressive. Oh, I'm a worry ward. That's my personality. Or I have obsessive compulsive disorder. Or whatever it may be that they say, well, you know what, that's how I am and I can be that way and it's because I'm sick or I was born that way or whatever it may be. Help them to see. You know how the scriptures define them? The scriptures call people who have come to Christ, embraced Christ as children of God who have been blessed with the Spirit of God, who have been given the Word of God, help them to see that their identity is a Christian, to help them overcome, because God has provided the means by which to do so. And that is by what? Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The transformation of the mind, of the thoughts that fill the heart, transform a person's life. Fifthly, encourage them with biblical hope. As with any sin, there is always guilt and discouragement, oftentimes those who struggle, there is guilt, tremendous guilt, tremendous discouragement. Yet the Word of God, just as strongly as it declares it to be a sin and unnatural, it declares that there is a powerful message of hope. And that hope is in Jesus Christ. That hope is for all those who come and embrace Christ as their Lord and Savior who died on the cross for their sins. And if they would come to God in repentance of sin, knowing that there is nothing they could ever do to have eternal life, God offers to them the free gift of salvation. The free gift of salvation. And when someone is saved, it doesn't mean that all of their temptations will disappear. All of us who are Christians understand that when we come to Christ, we're not perfect because we still have hangovers, vestiges from our previous life, sins that we struggle over. And yet, by the Word of God, it conforms and transforms our life. And there is progressive victory as we grow in Christ's likeness. And that same progress of sanctification in one's life can happen for all who come to Christ, including those who are homosexuals. There is hope, but there is only hope for those who see their sin and turn to Christ. With God, there is always hope. And there is no final condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as Romans 8.1 would tell us. So encourage them with biblical hope. Sixthly, pray for them. Pray for them. Sexual immorality in its many forms often has a grip on a person's heart. And it's telling because some people will say, well, this is no worse than anything else. It's not anything different than, you know, little white lies or whatever it may be. Why is it such a pronoun? I think, it's a, I think it is very telling that Paul, out of 
this very explicit chapter in Romans chapter 1, what does he say God gave them over to? He gave them over to this particular sin. Just as God gave them over, God can also once again extend His grace to restrain them from further sin. And it seems to me that sometimes Christians can spend more time opposing homosexuals but little time praying for them. Now, I'm not saying that opposing them is necessarily wrong, but it is the power of God that changes people through the gospel and the good news. And we need to pray that that would happen. I've read stories about people, many of them, who are hurting people. And it's no wonder that they've turned away from God because there is pain and there's been a lack of understanding and lack of hope how people come across. But God grants hope because God can heal, God can restore, God can make holy once again, just as He has done for all of us. So show love and respect. Be clear that it is sinful. Humbly understand that we too are fallen sinners and were X something before. Help them to see their identity in Christ and to share that hope with them and pray for them. In his book, Washed and Waiting, Wesley Hill shares about his struggle with same-sex attraction and his desire to obey Christ and remain celibate. He writes about a time when he felt the world was caving in on him and this is what he writes. I had been living in Minneapolis for only a few months and I felt burdened physically so at times by loneliness confusion and fear. During a brief visit to Wheaton, Illinois, I arranged to meet with my good friend Chris. On a cold winter afternoon, I told him how I was feeling and asked for his help. Out of all the things Chris said to me in response to that day, one sticks out. With compassion in his voice, he said, quote, Imagine yourself standing in the presence of God, looking down from heaven on your earthly life that you're about to be born into. And God says to you, well, Wes, I'm going to send you into the world for 60 or 70 or 80 years. It will be hard. In fact, it will be more painful and confusing and distressing than you can now imagine. You will have a thorn in your flesh, a homosexual orientation that is the result of your entering a world that sin and death have broken. And you may wrestle with it all your life, but I will be with you. I will be watching every step you take, guiding you by my Spirit, supplying you with grace sufficient for each day, and at the end of your journey you will see my face again, and the joy we share then will be born out of the agonies you faithfully endured by the power I gave you. And no one will take that joy away from you. Wesley, Chris said, looking in me in the eye, would you say yes to that journey if you had had that conversation with God? I nodded. But you have had it in a sense. God is the author of your story. He is watching, supplying you with the Spirit moment by moment. And He will raise your body from the dead 
to live with Him and all the great company of the redeemed forever. Can you keep walking the lonely road if you remember He's looking on and delights to help you persevere? Wesley Hill comments, Your struggle isn't a mindless, unobserved string of random disappointments. I heard Chris say, It will be worth it. The joy then will be worth the struggle now. In the end, I think that is how I am learning to live faithfully as a celibate person who struggles with same-sex attraction, unquote. With God, you see, there is always hope. With God, you see, there is always the strength to live a godly life. And if we understand that that hope is repentance from sin and turning to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then there is great joy and hope. It doesn't mean that anybody will be perfect. It doesn't mean that it will all disappear. But it means that one day, He who began a good work in you will begin and will finish it to completion. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray, O Father, that we might be lights to a world that so desperately needs you. And Father, I pray that we might be bearers of the good news of hope born out of a biblical love for people. For, Father, it was You who sent Your Son to dwell among us who were sinners, bringing hope, the hope of salvation to us who had rebelled. It is You, O Father, who sent Your Son that He might die for our sins. And we pray, O Father, that we might bring that same message of hope to others, especially, Father, to those who need you so desperately. We pray, O Father, that your grace would be upon any here who might struggle. And know, O Father, that your grace is sufficient for them to resist the temptation of sin, to redeem their souls, to give them eternal life. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.